All right, well, we are actually ending our series tonight called In Spirit and in Truth, and we're finishing off with the final message on the gift of prophecy. So if you could do me a favor and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2 with me. This is the passage of scripture that we're going to start off with tonight. So again, that's Acts chapter 2. I'll give you a minute to flip there. Well, 10 what probably felt like very long days after Jesus had ascended into heaven, the gift that the disciples had been commanded by the resurrected Messiah to wait for had finally arrived. The gift that he told them previously about in John 14, the advocate, the spirit of truth, the one who would be with them and would live inside of them. The one the disciples would have been familiar with because of the life Jesus lived when he was with them, he lived a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. A life where we see him heal the bleeding woman, raise Lazarus from the dead, and deliver a word of knowledge to a Samaritan woman at a well that not only set her free, but unlocked an entire people group for the kingdom of God. The spirit of God that they would have been familiar with, with their study of the ancient scriptures, as they see the ruah, the breath of God, hovering over the waters when the earth was formless and empty. The breath of God, ruah Elohim who came upon Moses as he spoke for God, or filled Bezalel to craft and design the tabernacle of the Ark of the Covenant. The Spirit of God who David cried out for in Psalm 51:11, saying, please do not take away your presence and do not take your spirit from me. The one Job describes as the, the breath of life. As long as I have life within me, the ruah breath of God in my nostrils. The one that Isaiah prophesied would rest on Jesus and would be the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the one we've taken our first six awakens of the semester to talk about, about who he is, how he speaks, and how we get to walk with him. This was the gift that 120 people were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost waiting for. And when he came, when he arrived, He didn't come causing just a few goosebumps and an emotional response, but he came suddenly like a mighty wind and a purifying fire, causing them to speak in what is described as praises to God in other tongues or other languages. And those who were outside the upper room that were gathered for a wheat harvesting festival that actually represented many different nations came to see what was causing such a commotion, and when they did, they heard their own languages being spoken by these uncultured Galileans. Some were amazed and others were skeptic, claiming that these uncultured Galileans were simply just drunk on wine. But then Peter, the one who cowardly rejected and denied Jesus when he was being taken to his death, stands up with the 11, cuts through the chatter and the mockery, and boldly proclaims this in Acts 2, verse 15 through 18. You can pick up with me here. Starting in verse 15. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, no. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Both, even even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. This arrival of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of the early church. Contrary to popular belief, it didn't start with activities like handing out pamphlets, awkward potlucks, mediocre coffee, and confusing membership classes. 
It started with the Holy Spirit coming like a rushing wind, tongues of fire and empowerment to a man who denied Jesus and only recently was restored to preach with boldness. And what did he start his sermon off with? Well, this phrase right here, in the last days. So quoting the prophet Joel, but also showing that since Christ's incarnation, his coming to earth in the flesh, that the last days had arrived. And what would happen in the last days? He would pour out his spirit, his ruah, his breath on all people, sons and daughters, men and women alike, and they would do what? They would prophesy. Seven years ago, I came to my first Sunday service in Antioch. I was an 18-year-old kid who was in the throes of my own rebellion and sin, sin that I'm not justifying, but sin that came from a deep place of pain and hurt in my life. Sin I had turned to for comfort because I genuinely thought God was real and that there were some people that he loved and knew intimately and others of us that were too messy so he stiff-armed and kept at a distance. Some people he showed favor to and that things always seemed to go well for them, but others of us, he just seemed to let down and make life really hard for us. But in a place of desperation and putting my heart on the line again, I decided to accept my friend's invitation to come to church And maybe, just maybe, I would consider trying this whole God thing again. So I'm standing there in worship, in the smallest church I'd ever been to in my life, and listening to the same mediocre songs I'd heard throughout all of youth group. There's nothing glamorous or flashy about it, yet I knew that something was different. First of all, the people seemed like that were singing these mediocre songs to God actually seemed like they believed that he was going to show up and do something. And there was this indescribable peace, this warmth that I felt in the room. Then the sermon comes around and there's no crazy exegetical teaching or any new deep revelation of scripture that I had, but it felt like everything the speaker was saying was everything I was either going through currently or longing and hoping for. So needless to say, I was at least intrigued. But then my favorite part happens at the most unexpected time. I'm on my way back from the bathroom, and I notice this guy that I've never met before is following me. He seems pretty nervous, but like he had something really, really urgent to tell me. And he finally musters up the courage to get the attention of this new kid at church, me, the one who, didn't, who he didn't know at the time had this warped view of God, where he was afraid that God was just going to let him down again. And he simply says this, with his voice shaking throughout the entire sentence, I just felt like God wanted me to tell you that he's not going to let you down again. So nothing crazy and elaborate. He didn't tell me my address or guess my social security number or tell me what I was supposed to do with the rest of my life. But he told me exactly what I needed to know so that I knew I was loved and seen by God. Now fast forward four years and leaps and bounds in my relationship with God later. And I'm at an awaken that I just invited my closest friend throughout my whole childhood to. He's not a believer and this whole environment was foreign and brand new to him. Everyone's worshiping the Lord ecstatically like we do at Awakens, and he's just standing there with his arms leaned over in the chair in front of him, probably wondering why or how we can jump and sing for 45 minutes at a time. But as I'm looking at him, I just get this deep sense, this knowing that I felt somewhat outside of myself, but somewhat inside of myself at the same time that he's struggling. And I felt like I knew exactly what he was struggling with. And then my heart rate starts to increase, and I'm like, oh no, I know exactly what's about to happen. God's about to tell me something that he wants me to tell my friend. 
So with my heart beating out of my chest, I get up the courage to go up to my friend who has absolutely no paradigm for anything that's happening at all right now. But I approach him and I simply say, hey, so sometimes I feel like God tells me things that he wants me to tell other people. I could be wrong here. I'm not perfect at this. But I feel like he told me you felt trapped for a very long time and he wants to set you free tonight. But your heart has grown cold and apathetic to self-protect from the pain. He wants you to know that you don't need to do that anymore. He loves you and he's for you. Then he looks at me, completely shocked, and just says thank you with this wide-eyed look on his face. Then five seconds later, the pastor gets up on the stage and says pretty much the exact same thing I prayed over him. There's someone here who's felt trapped for a long time and it feels like you're alone and your heart has grown cold, but the Lord wants to set you free tonight. So at this point, my friend and I both just look at each other with this look on his face like, what on earth is happening? What's going on here? All the while, I'm just trying to stay cool and collected, but I'm secretly so excited about what God just did. And then at the end of the service, my friend comes up to me bawling, tears flowing down his cheeks. His heart had come unlocked, and he was undone by the fact that the God of the universe is crazy enough about him that he knows exactly what he needs to hear at the right moment. One week later, that same friend came up to me and told me that while I was praying for him, that night he had an open vision, so his first vision he'd ever had from the Lord, and it was of himself standing in a cage, and the hand of God came and opened the cage for him to walk away free. Spring of 2018, we were on our spring break mission trip to Tuiwana. We were worshiping and believing for the Lord to show up and do something, and of course he did, like he always does. A girl on the trip stood up and she told us she felt like God told her that he wanted to heal people who had chronic stomach pain. Though not a ton of people knew about it, Stosh, who was on the trip um, at the time, had been dealing with chronic stomach pain for about two and a half years. She had some doctors tell her she had cancer, some Lyme's disease, but no one could really figure out what was wrong with her. She could only eat certain foods, so she knew exactly what it was like to deal with chronic stomach pain. So a group of people gathered around her, believing that the Lord wanted to heal her. And after pressing into prayer for a long time, the moment she had been waiting for two and a half years had finally happened. She felt her stomach turning, and the Spirit of God came upon her, and he healed her. The pain had left her stomach, and she was free of chronic pain and fatigue and could eat whatever she wanted. So God saw her pain, saw how she was struggling, made it known to someone else through his Holy Spirit, and that person filled with the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, breathed that out, and Stash was set free, encouraged, healed, and strengthened. And these are just a few examples of how I've seen the power of the gift of prophecy in my life. And there are a few of probably about a thousand. And I don't say that because I'm some super Christian or extra spiritual person. I say that because I believe that a life marked by the power of the Holy Spirit is a life that's available to every believer, a life that's available to all of us. And contrary to maybe what you've been taught or have heard in the past, the Holy Spirit moving in power was not something that happened just for the early church and now functions more like a moral compass today. I generally don't see any convincing argument for that in scripture. And we'll talk about why in a minute, but we have to remember as we're closing our series tonight called In Spirit and in Truth, and talk about the gift of prophecy tonight, that we have to bring it back to the truth. Scripture. And Scripture functions as our authority. And what do I mean by authority here? Well, in the same way that a police officer has authority over us when we're doing something wrong, 
so does scripture. It is God-breathed and infallible. It has the power and the authority to tell us when we're off, when we might be in sin. And in the same way that our driver's license gives us the authority to drive, there is a God-given authority that scripture gives us of what we're permitted to do. So scripture gives us permission of what, of what to do, and it also tells us what not to do. And it, when it comes to the gift of prophecy, I wish we could just look to the scripture in Joel and that we see Peter quote in Acts 2 like we read earlier, right? And come to the conclusion that God still gives people the gift of prophecy today and take a hard stop. Case closed, right? But even as I'm starting to mention the word prophecy, there's a lot of different feelings in the room, a lot of different opinions. Some of you are super excited and very familiar with it. Others of you are completely unfamiliar with it and are somewhat intrigued. And others of you are familiar with it, yet in a very unfortunate way. You've seen it used to manipulate, abuse, show off, or even control others. And to you, I just want to say I'm sorry. And I've been there and I've been around those kind of environments before, but tonight, I humbly just want to ask you a favor and just consider letting God redeem that for you tonight. And this might hurt a little bit, but I honestly say it to be helpful. Don't let other people's mistakes and messiness make you sideline yourself in the kingdom of God. And if you feel like that's the place you're in, then talk to us. We'd love to walk you through that and help you in whatever way you need. And before we go any further, I just want to preface here that though I have had a plethora of amazing experiences with the prophetic, I've also had friends, strangers, and even professors of mine tell me that I'm crazy, that the Holy Spirit doesn't move like that today, and lots of other defensive arguments. And though I'm not perfect at it, I've learned not to throw stones at them, get super defensive, or dismiss them, but I've learned to walk in the way of Jesus, the way of love, and be confident in what I've first and foremost seen to be true in Scripture. And my hope is that you know that's my same heart for you guys tonight that my words are packaged in humility and love, and that any of my own mess or predispositions would be put to the side, and the only thing that you would have to be left to wrestle with would be the words that we see to be true in Scripture. So with that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and I'll give you guys a minute to get there. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians 12. Now, for context, 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul was an apostle who planted many churches and often wrote letters to them, which we today call epistles, and we honor those as inspired by God, inerrant, and infallible. We view them as truth, and in this particular letter to Corinth, Paul's addressing a variety of issues. The first couple of chapters are about division in the church. There's some about sexual sin and morality, and then there's even some about pagan idolatry. So, needless to say, this church he was writing to was very messy and needed a spiritual father like Paul to set them straight a little bit. And one of the final things he sets them straight about in this particular letter here is their use of the spiritual gifts, specifically the charisma gifts. So, charisma gifts coming from the word charismata, derived from the word charis, which means grace. So, they're gifts of grace. They're given and they're not earned. They're given out of grace as the Lord pleases to give them. We can't earn them, or they're not a true gift at all. That does not mean that there's any effort, that there's not any effort involved in actually receiving those gifts. 
we have to actually position ourselves to receive them in the same way that I would have to position myself to receive any other gift in the natural. So my friend can be trying to bless me by buying me son's tickets, right? But if I don't actually make the effort to go see that friend, then they won't be able to give them to me. And a more relevant example of these kinds of gifts would be more like a talent or a gift to do something really well. So like someone might be naturally gifted to play an instrument, but they have to actually put the time and effort in to get better and better at it. It's the same with this. They have to actually take risks and practice. So Paul picks up here in 1 Corinthians 12 talking about these gifts. So you can jump down to verse 7 with me and we'll begin here. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the same Spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So there's a whole list here of different gifts that are freely given by the Holy Spirit as he determines to give them. But for the sake of time, we're only going to talk about a couple of those gifts tonight. The gift of prophecy, words of knowledge, and a message of wisdom, or other times called a word of wisdom. And the reason why we're not just going to talk about the gift of prophecy is because oftentimes the words of knowledge and words of wisdom involve the use of the gift of prophecy, and I'll explain why a little bit later. But first, we're going to break all three of these gifts down. So starting with the gift of prophecy. So the Greek word here for prophecy is prophetia, which is the declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. It comes from God and is the foretelling of the will of God concerning the past, present, or future. So again, it's the declaration of that which cannot be known by natural means. It comes from God and is the foretelling of the will of God concerning the past, the present, or the future. So before we go any further, there's a really important distinction that we need to make. What we're talking about here tonight is New Testament prophecy. And how is that different from Old Testament or Old Covenant prophecy? Like those that came from Samuel, Ezekiel, or Isaiah, right, and many more. Well, simply put, those prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to reveal the mystery of Christ, his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension, which were still yet to come. Whereas New Testament, or New Covenant prophecy, the one that we're talking about tonight, points back to the revelation of Christ and not to any kind of new doctrine of our faith. So Old Testament prophecy is canonized and it's taken as inspired, inerrant, and infallible. It's taken as scripture. Whereas New Testament or New Covenant prophecy has a different function where it reveals human action based upon the mystery of the gospel, which we already know to be revealed. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica made the distinction this way. The prophets who foretold the coming of Christ could not continue further than John, who with his finger pointed to Christ actually present. So John the Baptist pointing to the Lamb of God, right? Jesus. But then he later goes on to say that prophecy still exists, but with a different function like this. At all times, there have not been lacking persons having the spirit of prophecy, not indeed for the declaration of any new doctrine of faith, but for the direction of human acts. And if all of that sounds a little bit confusing, I would simply define the New Testament gift of prophecy this way. Hearing God on behalf of others 
in a way that will always come from the spirit of Jesus and point back to the spirit of Jesus. It says in Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And when it's not, anytime it's not, then there was some kind of human error involved in the prophecy. Just like hearing God for ourselves, we can be off when we try to hear God for others. Or, as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, you can turn there with me. So just one chapter over, starting in verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, some translations say the perfect, when the perfect comes, what is in part disappears. And we need to pause here and make a really, and really quickly address something, make a good distinction. There are some traditions that would say prophecy and other spiritual gifts have ceased because the perfect has come with the completeness or the canonization of scripture. But there are others, like our tradition here at Antioch, myself included in that, that would say the perfect only comes with the return of Christ. Things aren't perfect just because scripture is canonized, which I can get from this here, picking up in verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So the perfect that I believe Paul is referring to is when we see Christ face to face. Then and only then will we fully know. We see only a reflection in a mirror now, but one day we will see him face to face. And I'm well aware that there's plenty of other arguments that we could get into, but the point is we believe the spiritual gifts still exist for today because we see that to be true in Scripture. But we also see in scripture that they're to be done with order. And that when we operate in them, we're not perfect and we miss the mark. So we test them. Right now, we don't see the complete picture. We only see part of it. That means human error is gonna be involved from time to time. So that's why with this kind of prophecy, we don't hold it with the same weight as scripture. Just like hearing God for ourselves, we test it and we hold it loosely knowing that it could be wrong. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22 tells us, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with content, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So there's this responsibility both in receiving and giving a prophetic word to test it. And in the same way that we would with hearing God for ourselves, we line it up with the scriptures. And if we're still not sure, then we take it to a trusted community, or a trusted authority. And we confirm it with how it resonates in our spirit. Does it feel fruitful and good? Or does it, like it, how it says in this verse, feel evil? Or does it even feel just a little bit off? Like those are times when we, we try to search it a little bit more, take it to the scriptures, take it to trusted community. Now that's only part of receiving and giving prophetic gifts. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this. I think it's really important to do this in a healthy way that has order, right? That's why Paul wrote these chapters of the letter to Corinth in the first place. He wanted them to be done with order. We can have really good intentions, but with really poor execution. 
So when we give a prophetic word, we always, always submit it. We don't lord it over people saying, thus saith the Lord. We come to them humbly saying something like, I'm practicing the gift of prophecy. And I realize that I could be wrong here, but can I submit a prophetic word to you? We always, always ask them if we can give them a prophetic word. And you always have to ask them their name too. It's so much more about the person in front of them than the task that's at hand. And then once you get their permission, you can say something like, if that doesn't resonate, then it's okay, but I saw this picture in my mind of something like a train on some train tracks and felt like God wanted to remind you of the times when you were little and liked to play with trains and that he's reminding you to be like a child again. And when we submit that prophetic word, we want to make sure and remember that the process of hearing God for someone else has different steps. The first part, we call the revelation, which is where we might feel God gives us a picture, we hear a phrase, or a verse comes to mind, or we have this sense or knowing of what God is doing. With this part, again, we hold intention that we could be wrong, but this is the part that we know we can deliver to someone, the part of the prophetic word that, where it's in its like, purest and truest form. So in this case, the revelation in that example I gave earlier of the train um, would be the train and the train tracks. Now, the interpretation, though, is the next step. So the revelation, the picture of the train and the train stacks, the train tracks. The interpretation, though, we deliver knowing that our interpretation of the picture the word or the sense that we got from the Lord, that that could be a little bit off. So this picture of the train and the train tracks is actually a real-life example of a prophetic word that somebody gave to me before. And it was very spot-on. But their interpretation, that part of the word, where they said it was significant of my childhood, was a little bit off. And what this person didn't know is that a train and train tracks is something the Lord's been speaking to me for a very long time. But to me, the train represents revival coming or a powerful move of God coming. And the train tracks represents the prayers that lay the foundation for revival to come. So the revelation was on of the actual picture that they had, but their interpretation of what it meant to me was off. And usually this happens because we can be very confident in what we saw and we get a little bit excited, but our interpretation of what it means could be completely different than what it actually means to the person God wants it to be delivered to. So that's revelation and interpretation. The next part doesn't always apply, but it's the application part. Now for me personally, I rarely ever um, give somebody an application for a prophetic word that I give them, like telling them how to act it out, um, because I think it's actually better and wiser for them to take it to God themselves and see how he might have them apply it. Um, with that, the prophetic is actually meant um, to point us back to the Lord. And I love when people give me prophetic words, but I always take them back to the Lord in prayer to test if it was really from him or not. And oftentimes when I do this, God has even more that he wants to tell me about the word. See, the prophetic word is actually just a catalyst for what God is inviting us into. It's not... It's not the end itself, it's a means to an end, and that, that end is to, to encounter Jesus through it, for him to do something in our life. So another catalyst is the gifts that I mentioned earlier, the gifts of word of knowledge and words of wisdom. 
So a word of knowledge is often more diagnostic in nature um, than a prophetic word is. It's where you supernaturally know something that only the spirit can actually make known to you. Like, for example, I once had this sense in my spirit that this girl at Awaken was feeling very lonely and isolated from community. I never met her before or seen her, but I had this strong sense in my spirit of what was going on in her life. So the first thing I did, and I highly recommend, is I prayed and I waited on the Lord asking for what he wanted me to do with this word of knowledge. Oftentimes, he tells me just to intercede. But when my heart is racing and I can sense myself getting a little nervous, I know the Lord probably wants me to do something about it. So I asked him, and he told me to prophesy into this girl's life that he sees her and is with her and has community for her and friendships for her that he's going to lead her into. So the sense, the knowing of what was going on was the word of knowledge. And the part where I asked God what he wanted to do in her life and bring life and redemption was the prophecy, the part where he would redeem it. And if you notice, just like 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3 says, you can turn there with me as well, so just one more chapter over. It says, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. So in this scenario here, I asked another girl to come with me out of honor for her and out of what we found to be best practice here at Antioch. We asked that in this house, if you have a word for someone that is of the opposite gender than you, that you would take somebody of that opposite gender with you for accountability and to make the other person more comfortable. Well, after taking another girl with me, I shared this word of knowledge with her. And when I prayed that prophecy over her in a submitted way, and the, the prophecy brought her comfort and encouragement, it strengthened her when she was feeling weak, just like that verse said earlier. See, if I had just gave her the word of knowledge that she was lonely, that probably wouldn't have been really helpful. But the prophecy was the part where God spoke through me of how he wanted to make it better and bring life to her. So sometimes people will come up to me giving me a word of knowledge, and they're really confident about it, like, you need humility, or you're struggling with patience. And I'm just like, great, I could have told you that myself. Didn't really need to hear that from somebody else. What does the Lord want to do to help me get there, to make me more patient, right? That's why when we get a word of knowledge, we take time to ask the Lord what we should do about it, right? Take time for him to actually speak life into the situation. So in this case, the Lord told me to prophesy what he wanted to do in her life. And when I did that, she immediately started crying, and her friend gave me a thumbs up and said, good job. (laughs) Now... That's not every time that somebody's actually going to give you feedback for a prophetic word that you give them without asking for it. But if you're truly wanting to grow in the prophetic, then I highly recommend that you ask for feedback. And sometimes we do get it wrong. And I believe that God made it this way where you miss the mark from time to time because prophecy is more about somebody else feeling loved and seen by God and being invited into deeper intimacy than it is for me performing for him. So I prophesy out of a place of sonship, of being loved by my Father in heaven, regardless of the outcome. And I don't do it to puff myself up or to earn something either. There's nothing to be earned. So earlier we talked about how the spirit, the breath, the ruah hovered over the waters, or how God breathed life into Adam when he created him. It's the same with prophetic words. When God speaks something, he gives a grace for it to come to life, for it to come to fruition. So when a word of knowledge is released or a prophetic word, 
there's a grace packaged in it to help us walk it out, to see it come to pass. So like another word of knowledge could be, I get a picture in my mind's eye of an ankle that's broken. Sometimes for a group of people or for an individual. But I simply just ask the person or the group as a whole if anybody relates to that. And if they do, then we pray for God to heal that, believing God spoke it so that there's a grace, a life behind it that he's authoring for it to be healed. So that's words of knowledge and the gift of prophecy. And with all of those, there's definitely some helpful guardrails that we can take into consideration when practicing them. So these aren't rules, they're just best practices that we as a church at Antioch try to follow. And there's a really simple way to remember it and it rhymes, so that's helpful too. But no dates, no mates, no direction, and no correction. So no dates, meaning don't give somebody a specific time or day that you believe something is gonna come to fruition. Oftentimes, people give me a prophetic word, and I think it's crazy and completely off in the moment, but then a couple years later, I actually see it come to fruition. But if somebody were to give me a specific date that something were to happen, and it doesn't happen because their timing's off or they're flat out wrong, then I can put my hope in like a specific outcome or a specific result on that day to happen, and I'll end up with unnecessary disappointment and it might leave me confused and hurting and even mad at the other person. No mates. We don't use the prophetic as a matchmaking tool or prophesy for someone to go on a date with us, marry us, or another person. You think I wouldn't need to mention that, but trust me, I do. Um, it just puts an unnecessary amount of pressure on someone that we want to avoid. And if you're wrong, it can really be embarrassing and even hurt the other person or yourself. So just don't try it. No direction. Don't give people specific cities, countries, or places. If you tell someone that God is sending them to Mexico and then they get there and it's absolutely awful, they can put a ton of blame on you. Instead, submit to them that God might be asking them to pray about spending some time going to another country or even just praying for another country and let God reveal the specifics so that when they get there and the rubber meets the road, they have a word to stand on that's from God and not just from you. Okay, no correction. It's the last one. I've rarely, rarely ever seen someone give a corrective word well. And if you're off, then it can cause a lot of damage and a lot of pain. So if you very strongly feel like you have a corrective word about a sin habit or somebody else's heart posture, then please first default to prayer. And if you really feel like it needs to happen, we're all about being a holy people as he's called us to be holy. But to call someone out in love is a really difficult thing to do. So we ask that you would bring us in on it, in on it so we can help you walk through it in like a mature way. Again, we can have amazing intentions, but with horrible execution. Okay, so hopefully these are helpful tools in protecting you and others when exercising the prophetic gift or a gift of knowledge. But what do we do with the word of wisdom? So words of wisdom are a little bit more prescriptive in nature. So maybe someone is going through something really hard and you just supernaturally know what they should do. Usually how I've seen these manifest in, in my life, and maybe you have too, is through dreams. I'll have a dream about something that feels like it's from the Lord that he gives me a solution to a problem that one of my friends or family members is going through or maybe even in like this ministry. He just gives me wisdom of what to do. 
Or it happens when I'm asking, when someone else is asking me um, for wise counsel, and I'm really not the most intelligent or planned out person in the world, but sometimes, by the grace of God, he gives me wisdom to know that someone else um, or a group of people should do in a difficult situation. And I have no idea why it's the right thing to do, but it resonates with them and it proves to be fruitful. And with these ones, with words of wisdom, I'm also very careful on how I do it because it's more of an application type word. Um, but I do it in a submitted way where I'm not pressuring people to follow my advice, but I'm trying to point them um, to the spirit of wisdom and revelation themselves, right? Point them back to the Holy Spirit. Point them back to Jesus in this. Because every gift of prophecy, every gift of knowledge, and every word of wisdom comes from the giver himself and will always, always point back to him. But we can't receive these gifts if we don't actually ask him for them. And oftentimes, people don't ask him for them because of misunderstanding of their purpose. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So the purpose of prophecy is to edify others. It's not to puff up people who are more prophetically gifted or for a select few to put their identity in, a gifting that only contributes to jealousy and division. But to, as Paul said, to follow the way of love. In the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, right, about 80% of weddings mention this chapter. But in context, this chapter is actually sandwiched between one chapter about spiritual gifts and another chapter about spiritual gifts, 12 and 14. So 13 is also in context about spiritual gifts. And in this chapter, Paul gives his famous love speech, and he tells them that none of these gifts matter if you don't have love. Prophecy starts with love. If you want to know how to prophesy over others, then simply ask the Lord what he wants to reveal to them and show them how he loves them. And maybe you'll bring a picture to mind, a phrase, a scripture, an impression, or even a knowing. And if you're thinking to yourself that that sounds amazing and exciting, I want to be a vessel for people to know they are loved and seen by God through the gift of prophecy, then you're in a really good place. It's a really holy desire, according to Paul here, at the end of this chapter in verse 39 and 40. So you can jump down there with me. Verse 39. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. According to Paul here, we all should be eager to prophesy, but from the motive of love and with order. And just because you have seen it or heard about it being done in a disorderly and unloving way before doesn't mean that we throw it out altogether. We don't avoid messiness by trying to control things. That's called quenching the spirit, which 1 Thessalonians tells us not to do. And if you're not in that place, if you're freaked out, skeptic, or have past wounding, 
Let me just take the pressure off and say, that's okay. No one is shaming you, and we're in it with you to help you through that. But the most loving thing for me to tell you right now is that it's not okay to stay in that place. Because these these gifts, as Paul's telling us, aren't about us. The gifts are about serving those around us. My senior year of high school, I decided to stop playing basketball and give up the sport I love. Honestly, because I was hurting, not physically, but relationally. There was some tension on the team that I couldn't seem to get past. And I thought by me removing myself from the team, taking myself out of the game, that it would only affect me. But my old coach, who spent countless hours investing time into me, came up to me at the end of my senior year after they had just lost in the semis of the state championship and told me, if you would have kept playing, we probably would have won state. But because you quit, we had no one to play shooting guard and open up the floor for the rest of the team to get the offense going. If you would have just shown up and played your role to the best of your ability, then we could have won a state championship. And did he say that because I was the best player on the team? Absolutely not. There were honestly a couple players better than me for sure. But he said that because it wasn't about me. It was about the team. It was about everyone else. My decision to sideline myself didn't mean that I just missed out on using my gifting. It meant my whole team did. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ and how each of us have a different role to play in the body. And if we don't play our role, then the body can't function properly. So our decisions to take ourselves out of the game doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. Spiritual gifts aren't about us. They're about serving people in love around us. And God is sovereign, right? He'll still move in spite of our fear or insecurity. He could do it all himself. He doesn't need us. He's the, king of Lord, he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. But he chooses to use broken vessels like us to be ministers of reconciliation. The Father entrusts us with words of knowledge, words of wisdom, and prophetic words to deliver to his children so they know they are seen, known, and loved by him. That's what us eagerly desiring the spiritual gifts means. It means us eagerly desiring to be used by God to powerfully love those around us. And the question tonight is not, does God want to give you those gifts? The question tonight is, will you make yourself available to receive those gifts? And trust me, I know that sometimes environments where spiritual gifts are practiced can look a little messy, But our desire isn't just become a hyper-charismatic church where you can get your word from God or a gift of the Spirit that makes you think you're better than everyone else. Our desire is to follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. And if that means that there's a few bad eggs or messes that come up along the way, then we'll deal with them. We'll deal with them as they come up. But we're not going to dictate what God can and can't do with us. This is it. This is his house. And if he wants to pour his spirit out on us without measure and distributes gift to us as he pleases, then we're going to welcome that with joy and expectancy. So with that, would you stand with me as I pray for us? Father, I thank you that you say that you will pour your spirit out on your children without measure. 
God, that men and women alike will prophesy, will prophesy, God. Holy Spirit, would you come tonight? Would you baptize us afresh? Would you breathe on us? Would you open our hearts to receive these gifts from you, God? These gifts that aren't about us, but these gifts that are about serving others around us. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. There's a couple different ways that we can respond tonight, but I think one of the main ones is repentance. I think one of the main ones is we have to get before God and repent of the ways where we've quenched the Spirit before. And it's not to shame anyone. We all do it from time to time. But God didn't make us to just be stagnant ponds. He made us to be flowing rivers. And he wants to pour into us. He wants us to hear his voice for ourselves because he wants us to know that we're loved by him and that he's a relational father who speaks to us. But he also wants his other children to know that. And he wants you to be vessels for that to happen. And one of the ways you can do that is you can come to the front and get on your knees in repentance. And you can also come to the front if you're, if you're ready to just receive the gift of prophecy. If you're like, that's something I've been longing for for a long time, then we'd love to pray over you. We really do see in scripture that impartation is really powerful, that where somebody who walks in this gift or is a little further down the road and walking in it, where they come and lay hands on somebody and pray for them, that there's a powerful move of the Holy Spirit that happens. So we'd love to pray for you that way. And for others of you, if you're already operating in this gift, then please, in a submitted way, pray for other people. We'd love for that to be more part of our culture. And for the rest of you, if you need prayer in any way, we're always available to pray for you. But please don't leave this place without responding to God.